Coming up on a 15-minute guide to predictive analytics, we continue our conversation with solution and technical architects Gopal Gopalkrishnan and Kurt Hurtler and focus on the data engineering for advanced analytics. You're going to want to stay with us, so don't press pause. Welcome, everyone, to a 15-minute guide to predictive analytics your podcast dedicated to going beyond the hype of AI and digital transformation to explore the methods and tools that translate data into tangible solutions for the operational engineer. But before we get started, I want to mention this episode is brought to you by Aviva Performance Intelligence. Aviva and OSISoft have come together to help companies from every industry engineer smarter, operate better, and elevate their business with a world-class suite of operational software. Discover what performance intelligence can offer you and visit www.aviva.com forward slash performance intelligence. That's aviva.com forward slash performance hyphen intelligence. So last episode, we explored data engineering analytics with the right layered approaches, such as descriptive, diagnostic, predictive, prescriptive. But once you get the approach in place, then you need to implement those analytics into process operations. So to explain how this is done, we've brought back solution architect Gopal Gopalkrishnan and technical advisor for OSISoft, now part of Aviva, Kurt Hurtler. They'll go through the implementation process and also have a hydrocarbon energy use case as an example for how projects like these are executed. So before we get started, Gopal, could you quickly recap what we covered in our last episode and also what you'll be walking us through today? So a quick recap on some of the takeaways from part one. Uh, we spoke about layered approach, the what and how of the layered approach, uh, using both simple and advanced uh, use cases to have. And the topics are data quality, maintenance, and process, because these are all different viewpoints or topics that you can apply to as part of this layered approach. So when it comes to usage, I mean, this could be thousands of calculations and models. A condition assessment could be on the order of tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands. Uh, predictive, again, about thousands. Uh, predictive advances on the order of hundred to thousand. And uh, the ultimate in reliability is where you are individually able to assign a health score to each asset and that could be on the order of hundreds to thousands also. So today we are gonna focus on this process operations. And we typically start out with this kind of a workflow for uh, advanced analytics. And we're gonna focus on this data engineering piece. The data collection is already done. So we need to define the problem we are trying to solve and kind of prepare the data. So there are valve lineups and valve closures that happen where he changes the, uh, the flows here. But what is important is as in the regeneration phase, what we need to make sure is there's a certain temperature profile that is followed. And the end goal is here where we are taking that multiple batches and we kind of overlay all of them. So the uh, profile is kind of stretched out a little bit, but you see the sh same shape and multiple profiles on top of each other and then I'm bringing it into a, a R or a Python, and I'm able to extract out whatever is the golden operation. So I know now what is the stable and capable operation of the bed. And I want to use that 
stable and capable operation, particularly the golden profile I have, and put it in front of the operator just as he's, as he's starting out to dry the bed. So remember uh, the time series data, there is physics and material and heat balance that governs this process. So this is timestamp data. This is not the same kind of data that you would uh, see in a, a stock transaction in trading or even in web click uh, data analysis that somebody does because whatever machine learning that you do needs to be guided by physics and physics constraints, right? So the time series data is not stored in a relational database within the Pi system. There is a file store and the API is you know, fully published and available, but just because of the nature of the data, it is incomplete. The sensor may sometime not publish data at all, so there are gaps in the data. Also, when the values come in, the values may not be evenly spaced in time because we are trying to focus on a, a signal uh, of the system. Uh, just a value may come in, uh, this is a, a typical sensor value that comes in, and let's say that is my sensor, that is the name of the uh, uh, stream that I am tracking, and uh, depending on the data collection I have in place, a timestamp may accompany that or we may assign a timestamp when we receive the data. But this is how the data is internally stored. And two more things I want to point out. Uh, when we talk to users, they spend a lot of time uh, doing machine learning and trying to do curve fit. There is no need to do a polynomial curve fit on these things, completely unnecessary, because we can just use the curve functions to literally get 100% uh, reduction of that curve. You know, typically you will see those curves in uh, pump curve or compressor curves. And then the other thing I want to point out is we also run into this where uh, the data that we are trying to analyze and get some insights on as part of machine learning covers a um, uh, covers multiple units. So in any uh, data science project, always a good idea to start with a little bit of domain knowledge. If you don't have it, you know, work with operations to learn a little bit of more, a little bit more about the asset that you're monitoring, uh, monitoring or trying to build an analytic for. Um, one of them is drying, uh, removing the water from the hydrocarbon feed, and the other one's being regenerated. So there's always one available in this continuous process. Um, usually the drying happens at a low temperature, and when we want to regenerate them, the temperature is increased to, let's say, 200 degrees or better, and that drives the water back out, getting it ready for the next cycle. Um, there's some other inf information about this that's kind of um, something to keep in mind, and that um, the condition or the drying bed age isn't really determined by the calendar. So typically these things are, are measured by or the age of the bed is really measured by the volume of material that goes through it. So the volume of material dried or how much hydrocarbon over time that goes through here measured in barrels divided by the number of uh, the weight of the molecular sieve. So barrels per pound is kind of the metric that's typically used for these kinds of beds. So that's the age. And why the age is important is because you kind of have two beds and optimally managing them means that they both kind of have an end of life with the same amount of you know, drying service. So these beds can be in service for many years. 
So it's a long period of time before they actually get dumped and the molecular sieve gets replaced. So managing them and always being aware of how much material has gone through each of them because the, the rates vary and things like that is kind of important is, in, is useful to uh, operations for managing these two beds. So we want to be able to identify um, with the digital indication when each dryer was in its regenerating mode because we're really only interested for this data science experiment of extracting data during those time periods. Uh, the other times we don't really don't care because the whole objective here is just to work on predicting that temperature profile that you see. And our first guess is going to be to just assume that once the outlet temperature goes above 170 degrees, that indicates that the, the bed's being placed into a regeneration state. And when it falls below 170, that, that kind of ends it. And what this will do by identifying these periods of time is we'll use a technique called event frames in the Pi system to, to record or sort of bookmark the start and end times of each regeneration cycle. And that'll allow us to add data about that regeneration cycle to the record, the event frame record, and also allows us to extract the data only for those time periods um, from the Pi system. So we're not going to have to bring in data from everything or many years worth of data and then have to cut that stuff out. We're only going to bring in data in the data set that's interesting to us for this particular experiment. But basically it gives us a way of kind of not only um, testing it out and checking it, but also actually populating the historical data with that new value. So now it becomes available for operations or other people to use. And in fact, in a lot of times the features that you generate in putting together features that might be significant statistically for your model can actually benefit uh, operations because they add insight to the operation. Even though you may end up not using them in your, your model, um, they are still something that operations can use. And when we're talking about the IT, OT conversions, it's always having, uh, you know, it's a good active goodwill for data scientists to add to uh, features that operations can find beneficial, regardless if they end up panning out in your model or not. So this is a way that you can, you can do that. So with this dryer example, do you have to account for variations in things like moisture before setting up the calculations? Yeah, that's a good question. So the, the, a better, more accurate way would be to, to actually monitor or have an analyzer to know how much water was actually going in as opposed to just using the volume. But in this case, uh, actually the customer data we had, that analyzer was uh, prone to error, let's say. So uh, you're right. The more information you have coming in, you can do things differently. But in this case, that kind of uh, information wasn't available. You just have to kind of work with what you have, as I'm sure most of you know. Um, so the second thing was the exposure to conditions here, and that is where you're really looking at the time equal to certain states. In this case, we're looking at the time greater than a particular value and trying to determine, you know, sort of the area under the curve there. And this is important if you have, for instance, you're monitoring transformers and you're interested in knowing, you know, how many minutes has this transformer been operated over the last six years over 90%. And you want to know those kinds of things as time progresses so you can sort of see what that exceedance of some limit, what effect, if any, it has on other variables. So how would you go about getting the data ready for what Gopal is trying to do? So if you remember, we had the temperature profile coming out of the regenerator, and this is just a typical piece of it. Um, and we had an idea, so 
you know, when the temperature goes up, it's in regeneration mode and then it falls back down and then we're drying the feed. So we have to generate a rule to identify what's what here or when we're actually regenerating since we have no other indication. And I remember our first of hypothesis was that we were going to just go with 170 degrees and see how it goes. So what's happening is that the actual sensor is kind of going up above our 170 limit and then dropping back on. There's sort of a jittery front end of this thing that we're not getting a good, clear, sharp delineation of moving into regeneration mode. So we're going to try again. And this time what we'll do is we'll add an average. In this case, what we did is we just took, instead of the current value, always looking at that, we took an hourly average, kind of a, a trailing hourly average where we're looking at uh, like an hourly period. And as long as for an hour it goes above 170, then we decided that's what's going to start the regeneration phase. Um, and that state really is the standby state. And so in checking with the folks uh, that this data came from, yes, it's true. There is a period of time in between the switches where the dryer doesn't do anything. It's just sitting there. It's, it's uh, ready to be put into service. And so what we've got is a period of time where nothing much is happening. And that's what this standby state is. And so to accommodate for that, we added a little bit more to our analytic to kind of say, well, if the temperature goes before, below 120, then we know we're definitely getting ready to put back into the process. And what happens then is we now have uh, a much better delineation of the three different states. Okay. So you get the idea that this is kind of an iterative approach. You don't have to get it right the first time, but, um, you know, that's the way it works. So we can now extract the data out for Gopal to do his experiment. But since this calculation analytic is running in real time, it's ready now. When we do get to the operational state, all of this stuff's in place. We know how we're going to calculate things. And so we, when we operationalize it, we have in place the, the foundation for now not just running the model or creating the data to do the model uh, development, but we also have... Uh, what's in place and what we need and the, the information required to do the model scoring when we want to actually put the model into play in real time. So the rest of the uh, things that we need to do is the data that Kurt has uh, prepared, we need to be able to take it out because we are now going to bring in uh, machine learning tools. So it could be years worth of data you may want to uh, send out. And then you would come up with some model development that you would do in Python or in Power BI or R and all that. Or if you're using, uh, let's say, a tool like Amazon or Google or something, this shows you that data. The same story in terms of collect and prepare, but now the endpoint is uh, an S3 bucket or Amazon Redshift. Uh, model gets developed and published all within uh, AWS itself through SageMaker, through Lambda functions, and and you deploy the model, but the endpoints are available so that you can go back and forth when you want to score the model. So why wouldn't you simply give the raw data to someone like a data scientist and just let them figure it out? Well, why go through this process? Not all the data are readily usable by a machine learning tool. And if there are flatline data or there is idle timeout, all those things can be caught ahead of time as close to the data source as possible. And uh, you can impute data even before it gets sent out to these machine learning tools. 
when you're building a model of this nature after the data has been prepared, is it useful or feasible to use something like a web server as a machine learning device to deploy and operationalize the machine learning model? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that is what we do. For example, uh, in, if, if the model is getting developed in Azure ML using ML Studio, then Azure makes that uh, the whatever um, equation or model that you came up with available as a web service right within Azure itself. So all you do is pass the parameters to that web service and bring back the results into Poly. All right, Gopal and Kurt, can you explain the common best practices to enable this level of data engineering to be implemented? Step one, I would say, make sure that you involve the subject matter expert as you are any of projects. Yeah, and, and I just to add to that, I think that's really important because it, you know, the, the IT OT thing is really about people in a lot of cases. My experience in doing these things is if you try to do it on your own and then show up and try to get somebody to use your model, it's it's really difficult unless you've involved them at the beginning. So I, I think what Gopal said, I think that's the best practice is just involve the, you know, the people who really know how things work that may not know how to quantify it, so to speak, but yeah, try to get what they know into the system so that those variables are are useful for your model. And I think you'll get a lot better acceptance when you actually try to you know, get people to use what you've created. Okay, folks, our 15 minutes is now up. Be sure to subscribe and join us for our next episode. And if you'd like to learn more, be sure to check out our sponsored website, www.aviva.com forward slash performance intelligence. That's aviva.com forward slash performance hyphen intelligence. We'll see you next time.